Joey's Conversations. This conversation is a part of the Media Lab's ML Talk series and is a presentation by and a conversation with Jamila Rakib from the Albert Einstein Institute. Hi, everybody. I'm Joey Ito, director of the Media Lab. Welcome to ML Talks. And for those of you watching on the video stream, you can either comment on the Facebook Live comments or tweet any questions and we'll pick them up and try to address them. The traditional format is there's 30 minutes uh, of a presentation, 30 minutes of conversation, and roughly 30 minutes of interaction with, with uh, all of you. Uh, today's speaker is Jamila Rakib. She is uh, uh, going to talk about nonviolent action. She's the executive director of the Albert Einstein Institute and has worked very closely with Jean Sharp, who is one of the foremost uh, scholars on strategic nonviolent action. And Jamila is here working with us at the Media Lab as a research affiliate, thinking about how technology and the current environment sort of changes and modifies some of the work that she's uh, developed um, at the Institute with Jean Sharp and others. So uh, with that, I'd like Jamila to come up and tell us a little bit about her work. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, and thank you all very much for being here, and thanks to everyone that's tuning into our live stream. I'd like to talk today about the topic of nonviolent resistance and why it's essential that we understand this phenomenon and understand the impact that it's having on our world today. I'd also like to explore how we can make the application of nonviolent resistance more effective so that it's better able to address the diverse issues that are faced by people around the globe. I've been studying nonviolent resistance and working with the groups that are using it for a long time, 15 years, at the Albert Einstein Institution alongside Gene Sharp, the foremost scholar on the topic. Gene Sharp began his research in the 1950s, and since then, he's written dozens of books on the topic. He founded the Einstein Institution in 1983 to conduct research on the topic, to share the results of the research through publications and translations, and to conduct workshops and consultations with groups in conflict. His writings have been studied by people around the globe, and he's made a major contribution to the understanding of the technique and how it works. This is a selection of some of the smuggling editions of his material. As I said, I've been involved in this work for a long time, but I've been thinking about issues related to war and oppression and resistance long before that, as a young refugee of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Experiencing firsthand the terrible cost of war taught me something important, and it wasn't that resistance violence was morally wrong. It was that it was politically necessary. Even though I was horrified by the terrible costs of war and violence on society, I felt quite comfortable justifying it for so-called good purposes, namely resistance violence. Because how else were people supposed to defend themselves and their families against oppression and occupation and invasion? I share this with you because a lot of people are surprised that I didn't come to this work as a pacifist. I came to it as someone who firmly believes in people's right to resist injustices against them. I want to start by telling you about one of my favorite recent examples of nonviolent resistance, because it involves creativity and humor and defiance, and also, very importantly, tactical planning. 
So Germans living in the small town of Wonsiedel were sick of the town's annual neo-Nazi parade. It attracted hundreds of right-wing Nazis and extremists who came there to commemorate Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy, who was buried there. The town's residents lobbied the government and set up counter-marches, but it didn't work in undermining the march. They were left feeling helpless to, to stop this march, because the marchers were, after all, just exercising their right to peaceful protest. Here's a video that the organizers later posted to explain what they did uh, and also to celebrate their victory. The Nazis Against Nazis campaign officially gets underway. For the first time in history, neo-Nazis are marching against themselves. In keeping with the walkathon, motivational posters and banners encourage the participants to keep going and make sure they don't forget what they're marching for or rather against. Excuse me. What the residents did was to hold an involuntary walkathon. So they solicited pledges from residents in the town and local businesses that for each meter that the neo-Nazis marched, 10 euros would be donated to Exit Germany, which is a neo-Nazi rehabilitation program which basically helps uh, neo-Nazis defect from right-wing extremist organizations. So now we'll play the video. No, we won't. Can I play the video? The Nazis Against Nazis campaign officially gets underway. For the first time in history, neo-Nazis are marching against themselves. In keeping with the walkathon, motivational posters and banners encourage the participants to keep going and make sure they don't forget what they're marching for or rather against. Markings on the road let the stony-faced participants keep track of how much money they've collected. And thought has been given to the right-wing radicals' fitness too. Bananas are being handed out as sustenance, so that even the most unfit neo-fascists will manage to goose-step their way across the finish line in this donation run. At 3.28 p.m., the neo-fascists have reached their goal. 10,000 euros for the neo-Nazi opt-out initiative, Exit Deutschland. This video was posted on a website called Everyday Resistance, which helps people to understand the different tactics, especially humor and creativity in protest. And the, uh, the subtitles there, the English translation of the signs, are really uh, quite spectacular if you pay attention, especially the, the sign labeling the snacks as Mein Mampf, which is translated as My Snacks. This example is inspiring, uh, but it also holds important insight. There's so much we can learn, not just from this example, but the many uh, acts of nonviolent resistance that are being used by people around the world who recognize that sometimes the normal means of making social and political change, like through elections and lobbying efforts and through negotiations, are inadequate. And that when these means fail, there are choices available to people besides using violence and doing nothing. Nonviolent resistance has now been revealed as a powerful means of resistance against uh, opponents of all kinds, capable of wielding great power in diverse conflicts around the world. This increased recognition is partly uh, a result of the Arab Spring uprisings in 2011, but also the struggles that have taken place since then, including Occupy Wall Street, and the anti-austerity movement in, in Europe, the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, uh, Black Lives Matter, the environmental movement here in the United States, among others. 
Nonviolent struggle carries a lot of misconceptions about what it is and is not. And I would guess that even in this room, we have many different sort of conceptions about nonviolent resistance as a concept and a set of behaviors. This lack of clarity has been a real problem because not only has it blocked the techniques development among scholars and among researchers, but it's also served as an impediment to people who might explore using it for their own situations. So we, perhaps it would be useful to start with a definition. Nonviolent resistance is also known as civil resistance or people power. It's collective action taken by groups of people to challenge a particular system, a regime, or a policy. When this action is conducted outside of conventional political means and in political institutions, and without violence or the threat of violence, the action falls into the category of nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent resistance isn't linked to a belief system or an ideology. It's not pacifism or rejection of violence on moral or religious grounds. It's a pragmatic technique that uses social, political, and economic tools to either preserve particular systems, governments, or policies, or to undermine them. Essentially, it's a way for people to seize political power and to deny it to others. Nonviolent action occurs when people refuse to do the things that they're either expected to do or required to do by either law or by custom, and when they do things that are forbidden or unexpected. Nonviolent resistance doesn't depend on a rosy picture or a view of the world, as some may think, or a belief that humans are good or that opponents could be swayed to see the justness of our causes if only we can melt their hearts. It's based on a realistic understanding of power and where it comes from. The idea is this: whether we live in a democracy or an authoritarian system or something in between, the people in power are not as powerful as they would like us to believe. They get their power from various sources in society. Even the most dictatorial system relies on the assistance, obedience, and cooperation of multitudes of people in that society to help it to carry out its policies and to maintain its hold on power. These include the military, police, and other security forces, religious institutions, the business elite, educational institutions, transportation workers, diplomats, technocrats, labor unions, and on and on. For each society, these resources, these sources of power, can be identified and severed. Systems of power also have weaknesses, and these weaknesses can be identified and aggravated. When struggles are conducted with this understanding of power in mind by people who have a plan, who know what to do and when to do it, and who have also very importantly developed the capacity to withstand repression that is very likely to follow. Then nonviolent resistance becomes a powerful tool. There's been a huge spike of interest, as you may have imagined,、uh, here in the United States in looking at the potential role of nonviolent resistance in recent years. Our tiny organization, the Albert Einstein Institution, receives inquiries on a weekly basis from people asking how they can plan effective struggles to bring about change on a host of issues. And I know Joey has been approached by numerous students and members of the community, asking how they can employ their own skills and energies in order to participate in political action that can be effective. This increased political engagement has come about for a number of reasons, but most recently, it's been fueled by the inauguration of a new president, who has talked about rolling back long-established rights and freedoms of minorities, of workers, of women. 
rights that were, that were won through struggles waged by ordinary people. This erosion of rights has already begun. The beginning of this new type of politics may inspire a whole new section of society to participate in nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience. I saw the sign this weekend uh, at the march in Boston. Um, and speaking of this weekend, on Saturday, women's marches were held in cities and towns around the country to protest the inauguration and to send a signal to the new administration that people are deeply dissatisfied with its rhetoric and its policies. It's being called the largest protest in the history of the United States. And even by conservative figures, people estimate, well, crowd scientists estimate, that three million women, men, and children participated. Um, with additional protests in cities uh, and towns, uh, and actually ships around the world. This is a protest in Antarctica. The numbers and diversity of the protests were far more than organizers expected. And the origin of the idea, I don't know if you guys know this, was actually a retired lawyer and grandmother from Hawaii who created a Facebook page on election day asking people to go to Washington to protest during the inauguration weekend. And when she went to sleep, there were 40 RSVPs, and by the time she woke up, there were 10,000 who had signed up to, to attend the march. These marches were not only a show of dissatisfaction, but a massive display of potential power. They were an impressive show of solidarity and strength, and hugely inspirational for many people. The implications of this shouldn't be understated, as I've seen in some articles. But still, they are only one step, and the first step in creating real and lasting change. Methods like parades, like vigils and marches, are perhaps the most well-known type or, or method of nonviolent resistance. Sometimes they're even equated with the, the technique. But that's because they're the part of the struggle and the method of the struggle that's most easily captured by television cameras. Demonstrations are primarily symbolic gestures. They communicate that X number of people are highly dissatisfied with a particular policy. They send an important message that the movement is capable of getting tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. They also give the perception of the growing strength of the recruitment of the movement and support for the movement. They can also cause others, either third parties or other people in society or people inside the administration, to reevaluate their own positions in terms of their support for the administration. But on their own, they're pretty mild type of actions in that they don't fundamentally change the power available to either the movement or their opponent. What's needed after this, this initial show of strength, is actually the tough part, the institution building and strengthening of groups to face the crises that people are anticipating. This is a list of 198 methods of nonviolent action compiled by Gene Sharp in the 1970s. I like to think that he stopped at 198 because he was communicating that the list is incomplete. These methods range from mild symbolic protests and social boycotts to more powerful economic boycotts, labor strikes, political non-cooperation, and finally nonviolent intervention, which is the most powerful category of methods in the nonviolent arsenal. Social media has helped to make participation in nonviolent movements spread like wildfire in recent years. The technology and social media tools that people use 
are using have changed the battlefield of nonviolent resistance, but its effects are more complicated than many people realize. The scholar Zainab Tofiksi makes an important point. New technologies and social media tools reduce the cost of organizing, which sounds good. But in doing so, these technologies bypass what used to be a more difficult process, the process of building a movement. In the struggles of the past 50 years or 20 years or even 10 years, it would take weeks and months and sometimes years to build the networks necessary for even one specific action, like a demonstration or a petition. In order to do that, the movement would have to build a strong leadership structure and a system for decision-making. Now you can get large numbers in the streets without first having gone through these important initial steps. Numbers are important, of course. Effective nonviolent struggle depends on large-scale participation. But what's more important than the, the quantity of the participation is the quality of the participation. And in the cases of some of these recent struggles, like the World Cup protests in Brazil, like Gezi Park, Occupy Wall Street, We observed thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets demanding change, which led many people at the, at the time to think that change was inevitable. There was no way that government could withstand this level of dissatisfaction and people who were so angry, who were not afraid to you know, make very clear that dissatisfaction. But we're seeing precisely that. Powerful opponents are usually capable of withstanding protests long after people need to go back to their jobs and to their schools, or people get bored, or it gets cold out, or their movement collapses, because it's unable to continue in face of violent repression against them. Just because you've managed to get people in the streets to demand change doesn't mean necessarily they understand the objectives of the movement, or that they have a good understanding of what's required of them, how they should behave if arrested, how to respond to repression, and the importance of maintaining nonviolent discipline. They may not have the commitment to maintain the movement in the long term, including the tough work of continuing after the victory is won. Because as we know and as we've learned from recent Arab Spring uprisings, initial victories require defending. Just yesterday afternoon, as I was preparing for this talk, I read that the administration issued an executive order to expedite the approval process for the Dakota Access Pipeline. The pipeline was initially denied approval um, because of protests and civil disobedience by indigenous groups and their allies from the environmental movement who took part in protests and civil disobedience to block the construction of the pipeline, saying it would endanger their water supply. Now, with Obama's former decision reversed, the Native American tribes and environmental groups who led the resistance are having to reassess their, their next move. But as one of the leaders put it, the victory of Standing Rock was won through resistance and sacrifice and commitment of thousands of people. It wasn't a victory that was handed to people, even though there was a progressive president in power. The protests allowed people, it was a sort of lab, if you will, allowed people to observe and experience actions that reveal that people can act and that their actions can be effective and that they can win important victories. This capacity that was developed through months of resistance and also among us who were observing these movements can be revived to deal with new crises. Just to give you an example, this is an old study, but a Yale study found that one in four Americans report that they support organizations that 
themselves engage or train people in civil disobedience against corporate or government entities uh, that make global warming worse, so it's specifically on climate. And one in six say they would personally engage in civil disobedience. That should give our administration pause. People conducting nonviolent struggle are innovating in remarkable ways, but so are their opponents. In the past few years, opponents of nonviolent resistance have realized the threat that this technique poses to their objectives and their hold on power. A few decades ago, governments who didn't want their population accessing these tools on nonviolent resistance would go on radio or television and denounce, well, our work at the Albert Einstein Institution as a foreign conspiracy to interfere in their society. But they realized that this often brought more attention to the work. Like the Burmese dictators who in the 1990s attacked our work by saying, if we were a weak and foolish government, we would not be able to withstand this, you know, attack on our sovereignty. But then one official went on to explain exactly what nonviolent action is and the threats that it posed their government, which, of course, was instrumental in bringing massive new attention to our work from Burmese society. This happened in Venezuela as well, where in 2004 and 2005, President Hugo Chavez regularly denounced my colleague Gene Sharp and our tiny organization on national TV. Uh, I don't have a video of that, but I do have a page from one of the government's reports about the culprits that they allege were behind their resistance movements. And that's my colleagues, uh, some of my colleagues, and there I am. And the caption in Spanish says that, I, uh, that, that my role is to provide um, uh, the, the feminine face and the softer side to uh, revolution and coups. And honestly, I found that very offensive. Now, in place of simple denunciations, oppressive entities are rapidly innovating in order to come up with better ways to counter this phenomenon. Many of them are using big data, social media monitoring, and cyber operations to meet what they see as threats to their interests. They're employing increasing numbers of personnel and specialist units to counter this work, and we're starting to see evidence of this regularly in the international news. In 2015, just last year, the Russian Senate named the Albert Einstein Institution one of the 12 most dangerous organizations in the world. Just to clarify, that's my organization of, at the time, five people. Clearly, it's not us that they fear or that they're attacking. It's really the legitimate grievances that, that, that people are making known in their societies. General Valery Gerasimov, chief of the general staff of the Russian Federation, told an audience in Moscow, the very rules of war have changed. The role of non-military means of achieving political and strategic goals has grown. He went on to say, naturally, we have to understand how these threats are to be repelled. Another development in Russia and in a number of other countries is the creation of counter-movements. Like in Russia, it's called the Nashi Group which has been mobilized as a counter sort of protest force. Governments are realizing that police or army personnel beating protesters looks bad in the media. But if you can mobilize citizens against citizens, then the picture becomes far more complex. And it's not just the Russian government. Other state and non-state actors are learning about nonviolent resistance in order to know how to undermine and defeat it when it is used against them and how they can use it to advance their own foreign policy objectives. 
or domestic objectives. There's even a report that advises energy companies how they can better understand civil disobedience and counter these actions by environmental groups to reduce the likelihood that these actions will uh, threaten their ability to make a profit. I have that report if anybody wants to see it. It's been since removed from the internet. In China, instead of the police forcing protesters off the roads, they've closed them for cleaning. And instead of using military vehicles, they use street sweepers, and, and, and they hose down protesters that are in the path of the cleaners. The Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong documented cases of security services using a Jean provocateur who tried to incite violence in the name of the resistance against the police, and who beat protesters, and also who carried out sexual assault of female protesters. This technique is not unique to Hong Kong. Sexual assault against female protesters is an effective means to get them to vacate the streets, leaving just the most militant young men. And when that happens, violent repression against them becomes more easily justifiable. Just last month, Malaysia's government set up a task force consisting of the police, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, and the Attorney General's office, along with other government agencies, to monitor civil society movements in order to prevent a so-called color revolution, which is code for a people power revolution stemming from popular discontent. They have cited my organization by name in those announcements. These developments mean that activists and organizers have to identify problems faster and to react more intelligently in order to remain effective in face of these countermeasures that are being deployed against them. Ad hoc, spontaneous, and make-it-up-as-you-go-along movements will become increasingly impotent against organized opponents. For years, only a very small number of specialists have been, dealing, have been helping with material and guidance, but that's not good enough anymore. People are increasingly becoming aware of the existence of writings and tools that are able to help them, so when the need arises, they seek this information, which means that sometimes they contact us in the middle of a crisis, desperate for information or advice on how they can stop or reverse a coup election fraud, or some other serious political crisis. But the effectiveness of nonviolent resistance to a large degree depends on planning, advanced planning and preparation that has already been done and put in place in a society. So there are extreme limits to what can be done in the middle of a crisis, once the alleged fraud has, always, has already taken place, or the attempted coup has already happened, or rights have already been eroded. With no advanced preparations and plan in existence, often the most that can be done for people is to take steps to avoid the outbreak of violence by people who are angry about the wrongs that, that's been committed. This is why it's really important for people to prepare in advance so they can strengthen their capacity to respond to crises before they happen. In fact, this advanced preparation can actually act as a deterrent to prevent a crisis. As one person put it, you can achieve a win before you fight. Over the centuries, massive resources and some of the most brilliant minds have been dedicated to understanding how military means work and how they can be improved and made more effective, which has often meant that when military means fail, nobody claims that violence doesn't work, like they do with nonviolent action. They go back to their military academies, they study the failure, they refight the battles on paper, and they come back with solutions to win. 
we have to develop that approach for nonviolent resistance. The requirement for effectiveness in nonviolent resistance isn't intuitive. These requirements must be learned so they can make what people are already doing more effective. Lack of knowledge of nonviolent resistance often means that movements operate based on no information or very little information. They improvise their resistance against powerful opponents who have massive resources and capacities and access to tools to undermine and defeat them. And they conduct their struggles unaware that there are tools and a body of knowledge that is available that can help them. In spite of our limited knowledge of technology, talking about myself mainly, we have recognized its importance for our work. Most of our books are available online for free download, where they're accessed by people in almost every country in the world, often and translated often without our knowledge. The need now is to build tools that allow rapid innovation in nonviolent strategies and that leverage the power of communities to react to crises. How can we provide capabilities to movements that allow them to react faster than the opposition? A sort of enhanced intelligence movement for nonviolent resistance. How can we develop a platform where activists can meet and experience and exchange experience and ideas? And perhaps more, most importantly, how can we build an educational platform which is widely and securely available to people around the world in as many languages as possible? There is currently no comprehensive curriculum available uh, which teaches collective, the collective experience of this type of struggle. Operating based on trial and error is very costly, and it should no longer be necessary to reinvent the wheel. The Palestinian activist Iyad al-Baghdadi quotes Martin Luther King. I told you I wasn't good with the technology. Iyad al-Baghdadi quotes Martin Luther King, who said, those who want peace must organize as effectively as those who want war. But he adapts that quote to read, those who want liberty must organize as effectively as those who want tyranny. So I'll adapt it further to say, those who want liberty must innovate more rapidly than those who want tyranny. There is a nonviolent arms race taking place, and our future depends that, on, on whether we innovate more quickly than those who attempt to undermine freedom and democracy. Thank you very much. You know, I have that Iran video. And, yeah, I would like to share it. In spite of uh, the, the slide not being in the right place, uh, would it be possible to show, to show the video that aired on uh, Iranian national TV as well? Yeah. So, there it is. We'll just tack that on at the end. Washington, D.C. جینشار نظریه پرداز نافرمانی مدنی و تئوریسین انقلابهای مخملین که تعلیفاتی در این موضوع دارد وی از عوامر CIA جهت نفوذ در کشورهای مرد نظر می باشد man contacts anyone in the country they should dial a hotline uh, directly to the Ministry of Interior to notify them about this plot to overthrow their government. All right. Thank you, Jamila. You want to you can sit there. So that was great. Um,
I didn't know you were a wanted person like that. <laughs> wanted, wanted. We need, to, we need to get protection for you. Um, but, but you know, honestly, the academia is supposed to be protection. Uh, you know, I was talking to uh, Martha Minow, um, who's the dean of the Harvard Law School, and she reminded me that um, tenure, which is one of the things that I have mixed feelings about sometimes when I have to wrangle tenured faculty, um, but it was actually invented during uh, the McCarthy mm -hmm. period to sort of protect academics um, and free speech against sort of the, uh, uh, the witch hunt that the government was um, doing. And, and in, in many ways, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we see a lot of institutions coming under attack right now, but I think academia is a really important institution to protect um, freedom of thought, freedom to innovate, and... and um, you know, just creativity and diversity. And so it's kind of interesting that you, you, you actually joined the Media Lab sort of before the election, right, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, it was before election, yeah, but so uh, not before people were deeply concerned about, you know, yeah. potential crises. And, and I think that's also just sort of an interesting thing because I think a lot of, I, I know that um, uh, Ethan Zuckerman at uh, Center for Civic Media is working a lot on this, but you know, I think that there's sort of this interesting thing where a lot of the uh, activists um, have been fighting against institutions most of their life. Um, but suddenly we see our institutions coming under attack. And so part of the activism right now is in fact protecting institutions like the um, Department of Energy people not giving the names of the uh, climate negotiators. And I think you were just mentioning that right now the EPA, well, well, I didn't actually see the thing, but I mean, so they, they were sh basically, I don't know if everyone saw the news, but they were shut down and told not to communicate. Then you were saying that they're Twitter accounts were? Well, my friend who's here told me that, uh, I hadn't read it myself, but that um, they've uh, sort of taken over another Twitter account and tweeted that they're going to continue to tweet in spite of the fact that they've been forbidden to do that and that they uh, are, are all right with risking, risking employment. And it's, and, and it's interesting because this sort of institutional disobedience is, uh, it's, it's, it's not new, but we haven't seen it for a while because we've had fairly, uh, uh, you know, liberal leaders. I mean, the, again, another Martha Minow story. Her, her um, father, Newt uh, Minow, won the um, uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom recently, and he was the first FCC commissioner. And it's sort of funny because when he was under John F. Kennedy, and he was um, ordered by the president to shut down NBC um, because NBC was spreading fake news about uh, the president. And he just disobeyed him. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. And eventually the president come, came back and thanked him. And he said, well, that was actually a, a bad call. I'm glad you did the right thing and didn't do as I said. And so, so it's kind of interesting, this sort of, when we think of activism or disobedience, we often, or we often think of you know, people who are trying to overthrow institutions. But there's now a lot more of maybe we call it patriotic uh, disobedience. But Sure. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, sort of, you mentioned at the beginning that um, sort of nonviolent action isn't a, um, I don't remember exactly the words you said, but it's, it's not really partisan, right? And I'm curious how much you, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but you work with lots of different types of people, right? And so what, what is the, what's the mission uh, that, you're, that you're on? The mission of the institution. And you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it's to advance the, the study and use of nonviolent resistance uh, as widely as possible. That includes, and, and you know, the, 
The goal is to reduce oppression and violence in the world. And to do that, people must have an effective way to conduct struggle, besides using violence and doing nothing. So if we want to see less violence in the world, you have to give people an effective way to conduct struggle, and that includes people that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't judge objectives you know, by whether they're, they're, they're good or bad. We make, try to produce the best quality of knowledge, make it as widely available as possible, so people have access to it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've worked with people that you know, I wouldn't necessarily agree with, uh, and, and that happens, and I think that's very positive. So, so in a sense, you know, this arms race of nonviolence, nonviolent action that you're talking about, if in fact it increases the likelihood that somebody will use a nonviolent strategy, and maybe both sides are using it successfully, that to you that's better, because that just means there's less violence, period. Is that, is I would that? say so, but I think that we're, we're getting into some tricky territory now because uh, I'm observing that some of the best sort of research and innovation is happening by, by opponents, by groups that want to undermine nonviolent resistance when it's used. Yeah. And so, therefore, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange world we're living in. And, and because, in, in fact, you do have a point of view, right? And so, you, you probably, I mean, it sounds just, I'm just sort of poking at you right now, um, is, you know, if, if you're trying to spread nonviolence without being too judgy, but then you start to see the bad guys using it better, it starts to get a little bit disturbing, right? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't want to work with neo-Nazi groups, obviously. And, yeah. But uh, in general, um, I think that, um, again, it is a tool. We can't limit this knowledge. People are going to access it. Mm -hmm. And even if we tried, we couldn't stop groups yeah. from accessing it. So just, just as other tools uh, are used by, by opposing sides, mm -hmm. we'd like to see a scenario where opposing sides are using nonviolent resistance against each other. Yeah and to see a future of conflict where violence is done away and, with. And, what, and what's replaced. your definition of violence? Because I think people disagree on what that means as well, right? Our definition of violence is the, the uh, harm uh, against humans um, or the threat of that harm. And it's physical harm. It's physical harm. Yeah, so yeah. you don't so consider like graffiti or denial of service or that sort of and even property damage, so that's not really Property violent. damage, we do not define as violence, no. Right. It's unwise, uh, usually, unless it's your own property, because uh -huh. that's been used I historically, see. but uh, it's, it's, it's not defined as yeah. violence in the way we categorize it. And also, I've noticed that you, you're very careful not to say just nonviolence. It's, not, it's usually nonviolent action, right? And you define that's also a specific thing. And I think one of the things that I notice when you speak, which is, I think, very important, is that um, nonviolent action, and, and, and I think in, in, in the, in the um, presentation you talk about strategic nonviolent action, I mean, it really is a form of attack, right? It's not just sort of sitting, like you said, it's not passive, you're not just sort of sitting it out because of your moral beliefs. You're, you think that it's the most effective way to destroy something, right? Or, or disempower something. Well, I think it can be as effective as violence. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't claim universality of nonviolent means. We don't say it works in every situation, just like we don't say violence never works. We say that it requires exploration. There are a great number of cases where people use nonviolent means with great effectiveness. 
in spite of the fact they were operating with almost no tactical planning or strategic planning. Mm -hmm. So let's start there. There are these cases where nonviolent resistance was thought to be impossible, uh, and it was made possible by people. So I wonder where else you know, we could mm -hmm. slowly replace the use of violence with this other powerful means. And the, and the terminology is absolutely key. Not, um, you know, Gene Sharp, my colleague, has worked so hard back in the 1950s. He recognized that the, that the language uh, really contributed to a lack of clarity in understanding how the technique works, and that you know, how can we have effective action without clear thinking? And how can we have clear thinking without a terminology? Just like in the scientific fields, you know, you wouldn't imagine that we could all make up our own definitions for various phenomenon, so neither can you for nonviolent resistance. And that's why we don't talk about nonviolence unless we mean it. We mean something very specific, which is a principled rejection of violence. Nonviolent resistance is a technique. It's been used overwhelmingly, you know, throughout, throughout history for pragmatic reasons, not because people were rejecting violence on moral grounds, but often because they, they, they thought it provided an advantage for a number of reasons. And when, when we, so we have this, we had a conference last year called Forbidden Research, and we announced a $250,000 disobedience prize, and we made a video about nonviolence. <clears throat> and when we were talking about it, we discussed that the prize winner should probably be engaged in some sort of nonviolent disobedience. And then a few people, um, one, actually one of the students from Civic Media, um, said, well, that's a little bit old-fashioned. You know, I think, in fact, it's gotten hard to do conduct nonviolent action because the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the oppressors have gotten fairly sophisticated, like you pointed out, and they said, you know, these, uh, uh, the Gandhis and the, uh, the Martin Luther Kings, they, they wouldn't have been successful today, was kind of their thing. And so listening to these old guys don't, doesn't really help. And there was another similar conversation when um, we were, I was trying to get uh, uh, nominations, so I contacted the, uh, let's call it the anonymous um, community, and they, they, they took this email that I had written where I mentioned Martin Luther King, and they added things like, with the threat of violence from Malcolm X. And so their argument was even these historic um, figures of nonviolent action always had the threat of violence by at least some other group. So there were, there's, I got a lot of pushback when we were talking about that, but I, I'm sure you've gotten that too. I mean, how, what, how do you respond to that? And, 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 uh, and do you think that there's any, I mean, you, you talked about the arms race, but do you think it, it's, it's how, do you, how do you respond to that question? So yes, I have heard that before quite, quite often, in fact. I think that there's this tendency to dismiss nonviolent victories as having, oh, it's really this small group of you know, violent activists or violent resistors, and they attribute the victory to this small group. And that's happened a lot throughout history. And actually, the evidence suggests uh, otherwise, that violence is a liability, that violent wings of resistance movements actually do not help. Uh, they uh, harm the resistance. Um, and there's, you know, there's a book called uh, Why Civil Resistance Works by Erica Tachanowith and Maria Stefan, who have studied hundreds of cases of nonviolent resistance that have taken place in the past hundred years. And they've looked at this exact question, you know, the specific question about whether, you know, what they call radical flanks either help movements or hurt them. And they found that uh, mostly they didn't help. It's interesting because, you know, I go to Norway a lot. They have a lot of interest in this, in this work. And uh, 
Our understanding of Norwegian history during World War II is that the, when the Nazis attacked, you know, the Norwegian army was done away with in a couple of months, like quite, quite quickly. They were just unable to withstand this massive attack of, by, their, by uh, you know, uh, military means. And the, there, you know, it created this resistance. There was this, you know, they called them the boys in the hills, this young people that went and they would basically do ambushes of Nazi soldiers. And they still have, they have an entire museum to this group of very courageous and brave people, but completely ineffective. The actual resistance in Norway was by teachers and students who started doing symbolic boycotts, but then eventually denied the Nazis the, uh, the, the capacity to indoctrinate students and on and on. And at the end, uh, Quisling, the Norwegian puppet of the Nazis said to the teachers, you know, you teachers have destroyed everything. You've blocked the Nazi uh, expansion into Norway. But still, Norwegian society doesn't know about this incredibly powerful resistance against the Nazis. Anyway, I find it to be one of, uh, just so puzzling that as an American, uh, I go there and teach Norwegians about their own history, about this incredibly powerful and important piece of their own history mm. because of this sort of almost religious belief belief we have in the power of violence. And, and I was just going to cite our study, our, our mutual friend Marshall Gans uh, sent me this paper, but it's uh, Why Civil Resistance Works, Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, and that's a uh, 2011, um, but but yeah, and, and it was interesting because it doesn't. You're right. It does. It says it doesn't say that nonviolent action always works, but statistically, sort of having studied all of these resistance movements around the world, it works statistically more. Than twice. Uh, twice. It, it yeah. used to be. I mean, I think when the when the researchers did. Yeah conducted their research uh, now five years ago, it was about twice as effective. So anytime you present a challenge to a opponent that's powerful, there's going to be, you know, uh, you're going to lose sometimes. But it was 53%, I think, or so on nonviolent resistance and about half that, 23% for violent resistance. And they actually said that even movements that failed uh, more often led to, you know, uh, d democratic change uh, in the inter in, in you know years later, mm -hmm. um, and so there's a variety of reasons for this, and it has to do with what you were talking about. That most people think that you know the way military means operate or the way nonviolent resistance operate is that you you know identify your opponent and then you work to undermine and attack them, chip away at their hold on power, and then. The hope is that somehow they, they crumble. But equally important, and perhaps more important, is the empowerment process of the developing of institutions and strengthening them. So identifying where power exists outside of the government and then working to strengthen those uh, places and also to establish new ones. And, and I guess that ties into what you were saying earlier about you know, the... the the, I think the civil rights movement worked so well because you had the nonviolent resistance, but then you had these institutions and systems that were able to take that effect and then turn it into lawmaking and, and, and all these other things. And there, you know, some of the most famous people, um, you know, uh, like Marilyn Wright Edelman were, were, became lawyers so that they could actually then follow through. And, and I think Arab Spring showed, you know, some really great technique in nonviolent action, but that the institutions really weren't there to do what happens on the other end. And I, and it, and it feels, does, it, does that, is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that, um, you know, where you see, uh, 
better outcomes of nonviolent resistance movements. It's where people have done the tough work of building the institutions. And that does take time, especially in societies that are heavily repressive, where, you know, even meeting with two or three or four other people, uh, you know, is a, the government's so paranoid that they, they think you're, you know, plotting their overthrow and that's, that's illegal just, mm -hmm. just to meet with people. So it becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. I remember meeting with a group of Syrians, uh, you know, this was well before uh, the uprising, and they said, you know, well, how do you expect us to develop these institutions when it, there's such heavy repression? Um, and historically, the way, you know, other groups have handled it or, 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 or dealt with this heavy repression or extremely repressive societies is by developing institutions that are often not political. Uh, so gardening clubs and reading clubs. And I'm seeing this in the United States, even though we've got relative freedom to meet and all of that uh, for now. Um, but there are reading clubs springing up um, all over the country. And they're basically groups that are meeting to talk about issues and to figure out what resources and networks they can draw from in order to prepare their own communities for uh, resistance. And certainly at this point, it's a self-strengthening. They may anticipate crisis, maybe know maybe some of what that will look like, and maybe there'll be ones they don't anticipate. But this is part of nonviolent resistance is that Planning and preparation is so key that you don't look at opponents in terms of what are their intentions, but what are their capacities. Uh, and so if you look at capabilities instead, then it really helps a lot with planning. Uh, and that's what you know, so many people around the world have recognized. And one of the people who's um, organizing the Boston, uh, or, or one of the Boston uh, reading clubs is, I'm happy to see that she's here, Maureen. Uh -oh. Don't point the camera at her. She might get tired. Yeah. Um, she's, I know. Well, but, you know, I think transparency yeah. and yeah. openness is such a big part of nonviolent resistance. Yeah. I, I don't know about what she <laughs> prefer, but... But, you know, one thing that I found interesting, I, I had the opportunity to hear John Lewis speak, um, and he was talking about his days in the civil rights movement, and he, you know, mentioned the training that they went through in the basements of these churches where they would spit on you and call you names and kick you, and you would just train and train and train physically to be able to resist um, the urge to lash out and to be able to sort of s s stay straight. Um, and it's interesting because also just there's the, in the civil rights movement, you just see the role of the church, you know, and, and Martin Luther King was a, was, was a, was a preacher. And so, but the role of the church seems to be slightly different in, in today's day. And, and most of the resistance movements you see don't, aren't very sort of theologically motivated. And while you say pacifism isn't part of the uh, strategy, it, it, it's part of where some of this uh, ability to, um, have that courage comes from, I think. And do you, do you, what, what, what do you think the role of religion was? And do you think that it's possible to get that level of commitment now? And what's repla what replaces the churches and the civil rights movement? I think a belief in effectiveness of nonviolent means and that violence is at times counterproductive and that can really erode the goals of the movement, I think that can be a great motivator to stay nonviolent. Obviously, the religious piece can be very important. Religious groups and pacifists who have a belief system in nonviolence can play a huge role, a very important role in resistance movements. But the concern is that if you uh, present the religious belief as a prerequisite to participating and taking effective action, this can really um, cause some people to reject 
the technique on pragmatic grounds. So if we want to sort of increase participation and widen it and lower the sort of, um, you know, barriers, then I think placing the religious belief uh, is important. Mm -hmm. Because long before we become pacifists and do away with violence, we can still participate in this effectively. And that's our approach, uh, even though maybe some people don't like it. Yeah. And, and I have to be careful because as an academic administrator, I'm not permitted to uh, encourage my students to break the law. Um, but MIT has this really interesting history of hacks. You know, we put f the fire truck on the dome and, and, they're, you know, and they're, they're, they're appreciated when they're funny and uh, interesting and difficult. And it feels like sort of looking at some of the successful um, work that you showed, it has the same kind of taste as a good hack, you know, and I feel like there, there, I'm wondering whether there's sort of a, a, a merging of those two communities that might happen. Because I think, you know, MIT, it, 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 it has a lot of different things, but it, it has a very kind of making and tinkering and slightly engineering uh, culture. And so it'd be kind of interesting and to see you know, what, 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 is, what would be like a MIT-like way of expressing um, these sorts of things. And, and, and I know some of the fossil fuel uh, MIT people are here, and, and, and you know, some of you know, know what they did, but one of the things that I thought was very cool was they sort of took a, 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 a tape and put it around all the buildings to mark where the water level would be if we did nothing. And then you would look at it and you'd see the note. And it also, also was done with sort of coordination and respect with the institutional, which I think was really good. But I think that was a very elegant, uh, hack-like, um, way of doing things, but I think I think that you know, and, and and this will tie into sort of the second half of our our conversation. But sort of you know, what what should we do as MIT? And as you came part of it, I think you're, what we're trying to do is to sort of have you get influence some of the technology stuff that we're doing, but also have the technology influence what you're doing. But I, I, have you have you having hung out with some of the students here? Do you what what do you think? You know, I, without we have to be tr careful not to get into too much detail. But, um, um, but, but, do you think that 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 there is a sort of an overlap with the way the sort of sensibility of the the hackers here have in some of the activists you've worked with? I think you'd be uh, a better person to answer that than <laughs> I would. But I'm seeing uh, you know res receptivity to this way of thinking. It's non-institutional. It's not the normal way of doing things. It's being creative and uh, trying to draw from resources and knowledge in order to better solve problems. And I think that's really consistent with, you know, um, I guess some academic institutions, but, you know, specifically, uh, the, specifically this one. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, there is huge creativity. I mean, if we just look look around us here, um, uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to to see what you know what people come up with. You know, we're not the ones like uh, my job is not to tell people what to do or to give specific advice. It's really to share a framework to show what has been done throughout history, the diversity of things we can do, and how we can you know harness new technologies and new capabilities in order to make it more effective. That's, I'm hoping, uh, you know, something a lot of people will contribute to. Yeah. And I, th I, I do think that, um, and a lot of this work is going on in the Center for Civic Media and the Laboratory for Social Machines, but um, the social media that you were talking about, you know, I think one big thing that's 
clear now is that like you were you were using in the opposite direction but attention is currency you know and so you know, journalists often whenever they want to destroy something they write about it but now when you write about it it gives them more power right and it's it's get the, that that and the and in, the media used to be this thing that talked about injustices in the real world and a battlefield somewhere else but now the media itself is the battlefield and the pen is actually the thing that feeds the trolls rather than eliminates them and i think that the 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 it would be interesting because I think your work in nonviolence has been mostly in the physical world, but I think that there's some sort of metaphorical connection, but some inverted relationships that happen when you do it in the in the um, online world. And I think I think in a way um, we can learn a lot from Arab Spring. I mean, if you I think a few things like in Arab Spring, one thing that I noticed is that. Courage is contagious. So when one person steps out and they see it on social media, it gives the courage to other people to do it. And I think in the past, it went through mainstream media. So if mainstream media wasn't on board and covering your protests, you had nothing, but now you, you can. And, and so I think like when Gandhi was on the cover of Life magazine was when suddenly the world became appalled. Now you just sh share it. Um, but the flip side is, like you said, the institution building doesn't um, happen. But it's, but it's also interesting because there's a lot of covert... Um, sort of manipulation and coordination on on either dampening the effect of some people's messages and amplifying it. So, I I think that you know the the stuff that you you talk about in terms of the the physical action and and the the, the primary the basic principles that still exist and work, but add to that the sort of tool toolbox of all the stuff that we we know um, happened and is happening in social media. I think that's a really important thing uh, to combine. And it, yeah, it absolutely, be, it would be great to. To see that your toolbox expand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that to the extent that the technology can facilitate collective action, because just expression of dissatisfaction is not enough. In fact, you know, there's a lot of evidence that oppressive opponents are really okay with that. You know, single individuals, you know, going online on their blogs or whatever and complaining about specific policies or officials. It's as soon as you decided to do something with others that it becomes threatening. And that's where, you know, sometimes the repression starts. So we should be careful not to confuse the kind of freedoms with expression, with how it helps people to act together. Because mm -hmm. uh, we have this facade of democracy and of freedom sometimes, uh, not just here in other places. And, and I'll just say one, make one comment, and then we'll open it up to, to, to questions. Um, one other thing that John Lewis said when he vi visited uh, uh, this event that I was organizing was that um, uh, so he he and his friends, one of his friends, were sort of beaten to a bloody mess and left for dead by some Klansmen, and then several years ago the Klansmen came. Um, and well, somebody came and said, I want to meet. And then he said, will you forgive me? And, you know, and he hugged him and forgave him. And the kid was there and they cried. And, um, what was sort of really important was, you know, he was describing how nonviolence also gives room for the humanity to emerge on the other side. So, so there's obviously sort of nonviolent action in order to destroy the power of the other side, but there's also nonviolent action in order to draw up the humanity. And so the, the healing process, and Shaka Senghor, who was one of our director's fellows, you know, he, he talks a lot about atonement. Uh, after he murdered somebody, he, you know, atoned with the family, and that's one of Martha Minow's things is the forgiveness part. And Tenzin Pridarshi, who's 
we're teaching and you'll be joining our class. I mean, he, he talks about, um, in, in his work um, as a monk, um, he talks about disciplined compassion. So compassion is, you know, feeling compassionate to people you like or people you look like. Disciplined compassion is finding somebody you hate or who is beating you but still able to feel compassion. And that's also very disarming and also gives room for that, that healing to happen. And, and I, I know in some of your tactics and strategies, there, there is sort of getting the other side to convert. But sort of broadly, I think that that's also another element. I, 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 do you think about that as, a, as an overarching? Because so, some of the people you work with probably don't have compassion necessarily for the other side, right? Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say it's very rare that people have a strategy of converting their opponents. Uh, people that we're working with, I think they recognize that that very rarely happens. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps people have examples. We have searched for them. And when you really do the research, you find even in the cases where we think that the opponent was seen, you know, saw the justness of the cause through the suffering of the you know, oppressed, we find that there's actually some other dynamic at work. So I um, would be hard-pressed to find uh, real examples of conversion that, uh, where the mechanism was conversion. It is a mechanism that's defined in our theory, mm -hmm. um, but we, we, we again, hard-pressed to find examples yeah. of it. Yeah. It may happen on an individual basis, on like a very yeah. individual basis. Although the climate depends now, right? Level. Like I could imagine if you have a repressive or sort of difficult, uh, let's just call it an executive branch. You could imagine local police or local people who are first ordered to do something against their community turn because they're more loyal to the community than to, I think that's a fairly common version of when it does work, right? When, like when the San Francisco police sort of prevent the federal police from coming in against local San Francisco citizens and stuff like that. I guess it's not the same thing, but, they, but for a minute they have to swap. And, and it gets back to the sort of patriotic disobedience, right? I think it's when, um, when they feel that their superiors are doing yeah. something that's immoral and they're sort of on the edge. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you've seen that in Syria and other places where you have conflicts, right? The defections. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the studies also show that nonviolent resistance as a technique encourages defections of security forces. And when that happens uh, and, you know, the policies of the opponents are not being carried out, it's really the beginning of the end for them. Yeah, you see lots of examples of yeah. that, including Serbia and when the uh, commanders, uh, you know, um, uh, commanded the, the soldiers to fire on, on nonviolent protesters, and the soldiers said, well, that could be our families, uh, that could be my neighbor, and the crowd. Uh, it's such a diverse protest, so they refused. They didn't run away, they just put down their guns. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of cases where, where that's happened. And, and although, although some students may disagree, at least at MIT, the police are, are mostly on our side, so... <laughs> I know, I've met Chief Favor. <laughs> yeah. He's great. All right, so, so questions from Twitter. Um, um, from every MO, um, what indicators, um, um, how, what does this say? Are you most missed when thinking about how small oppressions manifest in every day? Um, what indicators are most missed when thinking about, it? okay, I don't know if I understand that question. Do you, Janine, are you there? Sorry, I'll just. Okay. Um, okay, we'll get it up. Does, is there anybody out here that, okay, can we get a mic? get Gershon and then you and then um. Hey, thanks for uh, for speaking with us. I, I have a question about permitting 
um, as kind of a, a permitting 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 okay <laughs> um, as a kind of tactic of our adversaries as as I think it's starting to be where so some of us were in DC um, this past weekend um, and there were a number of different protests some permitted some not um, and I think that the permitting served to sort of like box in some of the organized protests um, especially in that they were really limiting. Um, kind of through security scanning the number of people that could go in um, and kind of knew in advance how everything was going to work. So it was kind of very, like, it was, it was easy to expect how everything would work and therefore not surprising and not news. Um, and it seems like increasingly protesters look for permits to conduct their actions. Um, do you have a view on that, whether we should kind of go outside of the system when we, even when we just march? Um, or whether permitting is kind of a limiting factor for us? Well, I think it would depend, but I think increasingly uh, various governments and opponents are recognizing that, you know, if the goal of a protest is to call attention and to disrupt, uh, then it doesn't really do that if it's within the confines of where, you know, where, where they, they place people. And there are examples of where people are increasingly made irrelevant, you know, protests are made irrelevant by, you know, having them like far out of the cities or, uh, or whatever. I don't know what was the case, you know, the case in, in DC, uh, but I think perhaps, you know, your question implies that it is a problem. And I do think it is. And I think it's up to movement leaders to figure out in which cases should they get a permit and in which cases, it's, um, you know, they, they, they might do something more creative or outside the, the, the normal, um, you know, regulations. And, and also just as a, as a meta, um, the, again, it depends on how friendly and how, how able you are to negotiate, but, you know, the, the, there, there should be some reasonableness. And if it's unreasonable, another way you can do, if you have the time, is to fight it. In, with the politicians or with the authorities. And so, for instance, at MIT, again, I'll point, point out the, the, the fossil fuel um, team, you know, they, they parked right in front of the president's office and, and, and they were permitted to be in fairly visible places. And so I think, you know, if you have a, first of all, if you have an administration you can negotiate with, you can obviously negotiate a good position. And I think there's, a, there's several ways to go. I mean, I think you can be, do just, civil disobedience sort of frontally, or if you have, you know, lawyers, and, and this is one of the things that Madeline um, 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 Altwright Edelman was telling me about, like she remembered going to um, see all of her friends rounded up, dragged into a courtroom, and tried by a bunch of white people who were against them and thrown in jail. And so she, she, even though she didn't want to do it and she hated it, she became a lawyer. I think the first... Um, you know, civil rights lawyer in I think it was Mississippi. Is that is that right, Tupper? And and you know and and so the, the, using the law to fight sort of bad rules is also another interesting way to sort of attack the system because then you can maybe you know because if they are systematically putting you in irrelevant places, um, and if you're able to point that out and pay and get attention to that, that's also another another way because I think one of the things you have to be careful about is also giving people an excuse to throw you in jail, right? And so so again, it's a, it, it basically depends whether you have a lawyer with you or not. Um, and, and, and I will point out also um, that uh, MIT has a 
law clinic. I realize that um, some people didn't know this, but we have a, uh, a law clinic with BU. And if you're thinking about doing anything that you think you might get in trouble with about, um, you can confidentially go and talk to these lawyers at BU and they will give you advice on what you can and can't do or what might happen to you if you do do that. And, I've, and you know, lots of people have been using it, but lots of people seem to not know about it. But if you have something like this, where you're going to do something and you're thinking about breaking the rules, um, we actually have a legal service now to, to help students sort of think about that. So I would suggest uh, you use that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, go ahead. Um, so um, I've been told a lot as a student that I'm here to be at school and to learn and everything. But at the same time, whether it be on campus or out in the world, um, that there are so many more important things to focus on and to get involved in. And I was wondering if you had any advice for students figuring out how to prioritize academics <laughs> and action. Gosh, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I think it's a really, it's really is a personal decision and that's the way it should remain. Um, I think that Initially, when movements start, it's often really gutsy people who maybe have a little more time, who have a little more time for creativity, um, and who, you know, uh, who kick things off. And that if the, you know, that, that one of the keys to building the momentum of a movement is to really reduce the cost of participation, bring more people into the movement, and there's a variety of ways that that can be done, in which case, perhaps when a role is carved out for someone like you that speaks to you, um, then maybe it'll be you know, easier for you to make that decision and, and to participate or to not participate. Um, but or you could turn it into your research. So at the Media Lab, we learn through making, and uh, you know, we have one of the um, hallmark troublemakers right here in the front row, but you know you you can you can make oh, yeah. troublemaking an art, and um, and and you know and I think that when you look at, for instance, at the Harvard Law School, they make trouble to get cases to take it to court and learn how to argue these cases and things like that. So whether you're an engineer or a lawyer or an artist, and you can turn any of these things into into uh, work, and 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 you have an academic system around all of what you're talking about. I mean, this is really. It's a lot of research that goes into it. So I think, I think that's one way to do it. And then also, it's kind of, for me, the same thing with entrepreneurs. Like, you'll know it when it happens, when, when you just have to go do this thing. I wouldn't necessarily go looking for trouble just for the sake of looking for trouble and to procrastinate from not doing your homework. But, but I think, you know, but, but, but like, like I'm, I'm a college dropout, and I, what my job now is to try to get people to graduate. So I, I have a very nuanced message, which is, you know, if you don't have anything better to do, do your work. And you'll know when you have to take a pause. And I think taking a pause to do something and coming back is not necessarily a bad thing because often you'll learn stuff that will inform what you really want to be studying. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's a, I wouldn't overthink it. Um, and I think, as Jamila says, I mean, it's often people who have extra time or do, who aren't doing anything that might start it. But at some point, the cost of entry gets pretty low because you may be just going out to the Women's March on the weekend and giving them your support and that that's tremendously valuable as well and um and i think one of the things also i would note is that you know across campus now i hear lots of people talking about trying to, to do something and i think it's a pretty interesting period because you know we we just saw really interesting use of technology that we can learn from so there's a lot of data there's a lot of people activated right now and so i think if the, the key for me is to see if we can support these this energy you know which could turn into very negative energy if sort of not 
um, managed, managed not the right word, but not directed well, or it could turn into a, a, a big change. And you know, we can attack things like climate change if we have culture change, and culture change comes through collective action. And I think that collective action around climate change is just as important as the models that we're making and the laws that we're making. So, so I think it's a really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff that's going on right now, but the interesting thing is I think a lot of people are switched on and sort of looking for this. So hopefully we can we can we can harness that. Um, Sheila, do you want to go next, and then we'll go to you. Hi, thank you very much. Um, far, um, um, uh, far be it from me to, um, to cite Britain as an example of anything right at the moment. Um, but um, I, it is quite interesting, um, the role of humor in dissent. Uh, humor. Humor in dissent and resistance in England. Um, one of the reasons why... Um, fascists and far-right leaders have never really got much traction in the UK is that they tend to be laughed at. You know, um, people find them rather ridiculous. There's a sort of culture which anybody who builds themselves up and takes themselves terribly seriously, even in the case of people with incredibly nasty messages, you know, that's what happened to Oswald Mosley and that's what's happened to our far-right groups in the last few years. They just disappear. And I just wonder whether you have a view on the, what Joey was talking about, creativity and dissent and the role of humour um, which sometimes slips under the door while solemnity is still fiddling with the handle. Yeah, I think that humor and satire, and this is where art comes into it, I think are such, such an incredible tool, uh, or such incredible tools um, uh, for, for nonviolent activists. And we see so many examples of that. And I think that the key sort of quality is this uh, sort of disarming nature. Because uh, obviously some people, you know, are really quite scared. I mean, some of these issues are very, very serious. And there's a way in which I think the humor really casts off that fear uh, in protests and, and, uh, and other sensitive situations where um, I think it uh, helps to make things, you know, lighten, lighten things and, and helps to, you know, bring people in. And you're often dealing with movements that are very sort of dark and dreary, and then you have movement, you know, you're dealing with opponents that, you know, are authoritarian systems uh, that often, you know, uh, like, for example, our uh, inauguration speech uh, was quite dark, um, but then you have the resistance in many of these countries that really represents life and, you know, the, the alternative. Um, and so I think humor can play a great role in that. Uh, I think they even have a term for it, laughtivism. <laughs> Yeah, I think you saw in the not in the you know in the uh, anti uh, neo Nazi march video about how they employed humor. Uh, I think the Serbs and again the Serbian resistance to Milosevic they were some of the funniest um, you know activists and they would do these crazy stunts uh, like you know bring a trash bucket and put like Milosevic's face on it and then say you know uh, everyone can pay like a coin to like hit the hit Milosevic's face and they would just have it set up and meanwhile the cops come they don't know who to arrest there's no one there to arrest so at one point they kind of like grabbed the barrels and put them in the back of a truck and they photographed it, you know, the activists photographed it from a distance and they were like, oh, you know, the barrels are getting arrested and it was just like a big farce and um, I think it just brought, you know, the ridiculous nature of the regime, um, it highlighted that and it was this, like, inspiring thing for people. It's, it's interesting, we have a director's fellow, um, Baratunde Thurston, who was a very, he described himself as a very angry activist um, when he was at Harvard 
and he realized that he wasn't being that effective, and then he became a comedian. And he, and then you know, and he's he's very funny now, and uh, and he's he's become much more effective. He has he had this app that they they made, which was called Location Based Racism, which like crawled Twitter to look for racist comments, and it would tell you based on where you are how how, how racist it was, and and, and you know, and, and those things people because like that I remember that, and I'll talk about that, and I think it's a I think it really is a there's a, there's an art to because he said he he had to practice being funny it wasn't i mean he did it strategically it wasn't just because he you know he said in his family he was the non, non-funny one um, um hi jamila um so last night at the gene sharp study group which may or may not exist uh we talked about <laughs> the emphasis that gene puts on the need for strategy for movements and that strategy is central and that you are not going to be successful unless you develop strategy. And most of us come from a community organizing background, and so we're very aware that um, the practice of developing strategy is not something that people tend to be familiar with, and that it's actually a skill that takes a lot of time and discipline to develop. So I'm wondering, in your mind, how do we encourage people who agree with our values in this day and age in this country to be disciplined about having strategy, especially in a context where social media makes things so decentralized and that someone can almost on a whim post a call to an action like a march or something and you know the next day thousands of people heed that call to action. Things can happen in a way that are not connected to a strategy. How do we navigate that in this day and age and stay focused on, on strategy? Great question, and I wish I had an easy answer. I think that um, talking about the importance of strategy, talking about the outcomes of historical movements and to the extent that they've had strategy that's uh, really uh, very much connected to the level of success that they've had, um, and movements that have had more planning, that have had uh, been led by people who have strategic insight, uh, have had better outcomes. Um, and so I think that is perhaps compelling. Um, I think we often don't understand our own history. And I, I, I know there's a lot of historical examples of this, like for example, the American resistance uh, to the British and the American independence movement, that it was largely nonviolent, heavily strategic, and that independence, de facto independence, was achieved before violent resistance, and yet we don't know this, and that there was planning. It was not intuitive, and it was not sort of improvised. It was really done by people who really knew what they were doing, who had studied a lot and figured out, cal- based on calculations, you know? And so I think that's, that's sort of an example from, from our own country. Um, but more recently, I remember during the... Uh, umbrella movement in Hong Kong, I remember watching the news constantly and seeing that they, were, they kept talking about how organized the protests were and how disciplined they were, and that really has to be Asian culture. It's because, you know, Hong Kong culture means that people are just so organized and so disciplined. And I happen to know that actually people had been planning uh, that you can't get that many people together day after day and that if violence doesn't break out, that somehow you should attribute it to culture, I think may be true. And Standing Rock, right? That was a 
great example. It, yeah, it was strategy and training. Asians, yeah. It was preparation and planning. In Hong Kong, people gathered together for months and months before they actually occupied, uh, occupied Hong Kong squares. And uh, they had training on civil disobedience, what it means, how to prepare for arrests, told them, you know, we're going to have teams of lawyers, so when you're in there, this is how you act. You submit to, you know, the, the arrest. Uh, also, he, you know, they expected they were going to be hit with water cannons, mm -hmm. so they were hit with water cannons, so they wouldn't be afraid when it, when it actually happened. They were told, you have to pick up your trash. Not only you pick up your trash, you recycle. I mean, that's mm -hmm. pretty impressive, but not an accident. It was planning. So I think when we watch television and we see these massive protests and when they're effective, we attribute it to, I don't know what exactly, but quite dismissive of it. And the cameras and the news doesn't often capture the planning process, which is happening in living rooms and schools, uh, you know, around the world. Oh, Rosa Parks was tired one day and she oh, right. Yeah, right. spontaneously didn't give up her seat on the bus. Like, no, that was part of a strategy. It was planned. But yeah. we missed that part. And, yes. and, and I will give one more plug for the law clinic again, because when I tweeted out, I think some of my students are going to be in Washington involved in protests, um, the law clinic immediately responded and said, um, well, here's our number, we're here to help. So, so that they're, 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 they, they can help with that kind of stuff. And, and I think one of the key things is really knowing who to call. You know, I think that, that what a lot of the human rights networks that I'm involved in, um, really, a lot of the work is, you know, something happens unexpectedly and, and how do you find the right person? How do you get information and resources to somebody who's in trouble? Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky here. I mean, one of, one of my friends, um, Basel, who's, I think, dead, but, you know, he's, he was in prison um, in Syria. But the, 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 some of the things, like, cause he, when he was arrested, they, they tortured him and took his Facebook password and got his Gmail password, and, you know, and they let him go, and then, you know, and, and, and then they picked him up again. And so, the, 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 and, and I, that was, I guess, one of the points I wanted to make that I, earlier was, when you look at Arab Spring, you know, Tunisia was kind of easy because they sort of, they caught them off guard. And then Libya is a little bit harder and, and each, and then, then you get to Syria and they were very, um, effective in suppressing up the, the, the uprising. I mean, they had more technology, but they had learned from the previous ones. And so to your point about the arms race, I think it's also kind of interesting, um, to see the tools that, and the, and the techniques that other um, places use. And, and, and in, in some ways, some of the other countries outside of the United States are more sophisticated in oppression. And so I think one of the things that you, I think we can study the, is, is what sorts of tools are being deployed, how and when they might be used in the United States. And, 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 and interestingly, the United States government has been funding a lot of the tools to support these activists. And some of those tools might be effective in... Um, Sure. Yeah. Tools are developed uh, sometimes without thought of how they could be used against against the, the, the yeah. people supporting their, their creation. So I think that uh, our work takes the, the position or the view that uh, entities, governments, other systems will use the maximum level of violence they can get away with. And that includes our government. If it's not using the level of violence that we see in other countries, it's because there are systems in place to prevent that. And those can be eroded. So we have to be very prepared for all kinds of repression. Um, 
you know, again, focus on, on, on capabilities, not intentions, because we're seeing huge militarization of our police forces around the country. You're seeing some pretty heavy-duty weaponry that's being brought in to police um, American citizens. So uh, I think that's something we ought not to be blind to. The question there in the blue shirt in the back. Dr. Ito brought up a really good point about the very different role that the Christian church played in the 1960s civil rights movement as opposed to the role it plays today. And I was wondering, um, for people who are members of that institution, what strategies exist to nonviolently protest oppressive institutions from within? So you, are you talking about the church or? Yes. Yeah, so, well, just, this is just an interesting Rant. This isn't answering your question, but just something to be aware of. With the current pope, the Catholic Church is actually quite progressive, right? And I was just talking to a, a mother uh, of, who has a kid in a, in a school here in Boston, and the Catholic Church, and the school wouldn't teach climate change, um, but the Catholic Church required students to read the Pope's uh, writings on climate change, and that, in fact, the climate change story got delivered by the Catholics when the, the, the Board of Education in that community wouldn't. So, so it's, it's, it's interesting that even, I mean, the, the, the theological communities um, a lot of it does depend on who's in charge and, 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 the, and the message. And obviously there's things the Catholic Church even still um, does that m we might not agree with. But, but one of the things, I have been meeting with um, some of the leadership in, in uh, the theological leaders, and, and especially with the current Pope, um, they, they seem to have a great deal of influence. And, and what's kind of interesting is that, you know, if you're a right-wing politician, you kind of have to listen to the Catholics because in many communities, they have a lot of votes. And, and so, you know, we have the, the astronomer um, in the Vatican saying that creationism is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is wrong, you know, it's a myth, um, and, uh, you know, um, and that it very much sort of supporting science. The Dalai Lama also is very uh, fond of talking, thinking through things in scientific ways. So, so I think that it's, it's playing a different role, but I think one of the things is to really, in any, as in any community, kind of amplify the good voices. Um, and obviously in these communities, you also have some, you know, somewhat oppressive, somewhat conservative groups as well. But, but I think that, you know, again, you're not going to get rid of the, the system. And I think figuring out how, how to network the, the right people and empower them. So, so I, I do interact with um, a lot of people in, in, in different um, religious organizations because I think that they, they're trying to uh, have a role. It's a, it, obviously, it's a different role, but I think it's an interesting one. I don't know if you have any thoughts on well, I think that uh, it really requires an analysis of whether the institution is, has the capacity to change. And, when, and, and in terms of, you know, identifying a strategy that might be useful, it's to really target actions toward the person or persons who have the power to, to change things. Um, and so, uh, if, I'm not sure how that would work uh, in the church. I, I, I guess you know the the power analysis um, uh, would be would be useful in the, in that case. You know, um, depending on the policy that you want to change and what allows that policy to continue and how you can block it. And there are different you know depending on the type of issue. I mean, if it's something very severe, um, then the the stronger action would need to be necessary. Otherwise, perhaps something more mild. We'll take one last one, so maybe in the back there. You said something really fascinating to me, is that when we do peaceful protests, uh, we don't go back, we just say it's unsuccessful, and we don't go back to the military academy and study what we can do better next time. 
And um, I've been thinking about it. I, can't, I, I almost was not able to hear anything else after you said that because I started my life as a dissident. And I, first I wanted to say I was unsuccessful, but on another hand, I was exchanged for grain. And I am here, I'm alive, instead of being a, in a gulag. Um, have, have an experience with you know, some other uh, non-violent protests like a Free State Project, which one of the founders. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around the fact what is successful protest, non-violent protest. And I was a little late to the beginning, maybe you addressed it, but perhaps if we defined what success would be in those situations, because when it's a military altercation, it's rather easy to define what's successful, what's not. A few years ago, when there were... Sometimes. Much easier. When there were protesters on the Greenway here, I walked over to them and I said, what are you hoping to achieve? And they keep telling me that the, you know, somebody's mother lost a health insurance, she can't buy medicine, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, but what are you trying to achieve? I could not extract it out of them for 35 minutes, interrogating them on a topic. Yeah, I think that's a major challenge. I think having clear objectives is really important. Um, you talk about success and how it should be defined. I think that success has a definition in terms of how we look at it. It's whether the objectives of the movement, the stated objectives, were achieved or not. But we're looking at you know a complex world where sometimes you have partial successes and some of you know some of uh, various you know grievances were addressed and some objectives or, or part of the objectives were, were granted, but you see how effective struggle has different consequences, including different you know the um, uh, empowerment of society building of networks and institutions and how those institutions that are created during resistance even resistance that doesn't achieve its objectives uh, can play other roles in society and can play important roles and can play important roles in transitions and things like that so I think it's uh, important to have a definition for success but also to know that uh, participation has consequences that on, a, on their own can be very positive Positive. The problem is, is if people participate and think that participation is going to bring about big changes, and when those changes are not achieved, then I think people can go back to feeling as helpless as they were. Or the lesson may be for them that violence is the real power, and that's what they have to engage in also. I mean, for some people, uh, that you know, this is something that, that, that needs to be uh, avoided. But I think having clear objectives, if the objective is to bring about greater awareness of the problems, then let's state that. And then when that happens, let's declare the victory. Otherwise, if you say you're going to bring down, you know, capitalism by occupying streets, and then people realize that actually it's not quite that simple, then, you know, to, to fundamentally change systems by just symbolic protest, then I think it can be uh, really demoralizing. And if you mentioned when we were talking earlier that um, uh, many times the objectives change and a lot of movements end up iterating and changing into different effects with broader or different outcomes. And I actually heard uh, Martin Dempsey, who was the head of the Joint Chiefs, the top military leader in America said that he did an analysis of all American conflicts in almost no cases did were the objectives the same when the wars end as when they began and that in fact 
beginning wars is easy, but there's, he was, I think he said there's only three ways wars end. You overwhelm the opponent, uh, enemy, you just get tired, or a third party comes in and intervenes, and that, in fact, um, you know, you, you, you know, almost it, whether we're talking about nonviolent protests or violent protests, it's, it's interesting how the, uh, the initial objectives often um, don't, I mean, they keep changing, right? And I think it's, it's hard because when you pull out of countries or when you, like even with the Dakota thing, well, what is the objective, right? Well, we, we stopped that action for now, but then the minute we're not paying attention anymore, there they go again. And so I think, you know, the, the interesting thing is if you look at the NRA, the reason they're so successful is partially just their, just their endurance to just sustain, you know, and I think that that's also was a key part of the, uh, you know, but then some, there's tipping points like, um, you know, gay marriage and, and certain points when suddenly you can't imagine that it wasn't okay before. So, so there's, I think there's really interesting dynamics and I think it would be um, interesting to sort of figure out um, be very sober about what you expect out of what you're doing because you don't always get exactly what you plan, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why strategy is so important and to have a sort of end game, long game uh, vision of where you want society to be. But in the meantime, there are component campaigns that can help you bring closer bring you closer to, to your objectives. And that's really important is to, to start uh, with something small, perhaps achievable, something that can build confidence, something that's, you know, Slightly perhaps fun. symbolic. Sure. <laughs> fun is good, you know, that, that can be representative of the wider injustice, but it doesn't mean, you know, let's go in the streets and bring down the system. That's really mm. not, uh, you know, because you end up with Wise, Arab, you end up with Arab Spring, right? Where you take it down, but then what do we do next? Right? I think that was a wouldn't they? I think many people wouldn't call that a success, right? Although they were successful in sort of part one. Well, I think we need to be again careful about how we judge success because the the I think the effectiveness of the technique mm -hmm. is the, the, the sort of criteria for effectiveness of nonviolent resistance is often very different than that which we use to judge effectiveness of violent means mm -hmm. and military means. I mean, military means are often not effective at all, but we don't say, you know, nonviolent resistance, you know, or the violent yeah. resistance doesn't work. So I think that, you know, we've seen uh, important victories in, in the Arab uprisings mm -hmm. and that where we've seen failures, it's been, uh, can be attributed to perhaps a lack of planning, perhaps a lack of the step of building institutions. Mm -hmm. And where we see extreme failures like we do in Syria, they're failures of violence, not of nonviolence. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Well, so we, I know, I'm sorry we couldn't get to more of the questions on the stream because there were a lot of questions here in the room, but we'll look at the questions and hopefully you can answer them later. But thank you, everybody, and thank you, Jamila. Thank you. Thanks, Joey.